there's a very viral thread on uh, twitter which says that uh, chat gpt is my ceo and there's a comp- guy building a company based on uh, the recommendations that chat gpt is giving him uh, right. and he's asking the chat gpt for all the uh, how do i market this how do i uh, promote this how do i uh, get stuff for this and that and he's posting those replies on the twitter thread and then he's acting on top of that and and he's now built a decent company i think they are at somewhere close to half a million or so hi naren welcome to the podcast thanks so, pratish thanks for having me um happy to be here so naren in your journey you have made multiple pivots right before finally concluding with uh, wolfia uh, how do you explain the process of identifying the need to pivot in a startup that's a really good question the kind of way i think about it um at the earlier stages you really need to orient yourself towards learning iterating and adapting so initially when we started um we initially started with a uh, a fintech idea right into when we got into yc and we quickly learned that wasn't the best founder market fit just by talking to a lot of people um and realizing that like hey even though we worked at this fintech company for a really long time we're probably not the right people to solve this particular problem and i think like a lot of those insights came from actually talking to people so one of the things that if in the case someone is building their company or whatever like you really need to get yourself in front of customers and actually have those conversations. And I think like once we realized like hey, mobile which we've been doing for a really long time me and my co-founder is a better fit for us. We dug really deep into what are the problems that we've faced in the domain and sort of like dug deep there. Uh, and that's kind of how we landed on the two ideas that we've been trying out. and i think like the more recent sort of pivot if you want to call it that is more like us iterating i would say i think like we've been trying to build smaller mvps putting it out there seeing how it works talking to people seeing how it resonates and when we realize like hey this doesn't really resonate that's kind of like when we try out a different idea um and that's kind of how we currently landed with what we're building with automating mobile releases so just like being open minded open to just like iterating just learning what the market needs because at the end of the day what the market needs is what's going to win um, so just like listening iterating is kind of how we ended up with this idea now i think <clears throat> talking to your customers and listening to the market is startup 101 right uh, every founder talks about it everyone knows about it but a lot of people are not able to do it I don't first and foremost I would want to love to if you could talk about why people face a lot of resistance in talking to their customers and also what would be the best way to talk to your customers understand their needs uh, let's say someone for someone who's starting up and have not has not launched a product right that, those are really good points um to answer your first question i think like sometimes i've seen a lot of people just motivated by fear not put yourself out there so just like launching has a fear in itself that like people are not going to try you out or like they're going to reject the grand vision that you've come up with so people kind of resist just launching 
And I think like even us, like we had to learn the lesson the hard way that like putting yourself out there is one of the first things you got to do. Just like trying to get out there, launching on Hacker News, uh, launching on LinkedIn, like launching on Bookface and Product Hunt, just like putting yourself out there is a great way to get feedback as early as possible. I think like that's primarily uh, the best way to get your initial users or an initial set of people interested in the idea that you're trying to solve. And another big aspect is solving a problem in your expertise or area of expertise, which lends itself to you already knowing a lot of people who might have similar problems. And the way it manifested for us was that since we are mobile developers solving a mobile-centric problem, we knew a lot of, we had connections with a lot of mobile developers already. So what we kind of had to do was just like reach out to them in our network and start getting user interviews and like talk to them about their problems day to day and like what they face and how we could solve them. So I think like both of those combined, like launching early and you having the expertise in the problem that you're solving and like connections really helped us out, uh, get a few customers or like few set of interviews to get started with the process. So you launched on, a mul on multiple platforms, on, launched on Product Hunt and Bookface and all of that. Uh, and then what do you do? What do you like? Uh, you call them up, you have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with them on Google Meet or, or Zoom call or something like that. Or do you like read out their comments and have, develop a thesis for uh, the product? Tactically speaking, um, we reach out to every single person um, that initially for us, uh, when we launched on Packet News, try to reach out to each and every single one and see if they have more comments or feedback. Um, and just like digging deeper into those comments and conversations are super important. Like Gustav from YC even says like, even talking to them could lead to biases and wrong information because people don't contextualize the same information the same way. So just like sitting with them and walk, having them walk through what they do day to day is super helpful. So if you're solving a problem, just like getting them on a video call and just like listening and seeing them do the work. So for us, it would be like, hey, how do you release your mobile apps? Can you actually show me what the process looks like? So rather than them sort of like trying to explain what they do, actually seeing them do it, you're gonna find out a lot more inefficiencies and problems with their workflow that you're you're aware of that they are not. Uh, so, like, I would really recommend just actually going and like talking to those reusers rather than just like reading the comments or at a high level seeing what people interact with um, and learning from that because you're gonna learn learn a lot more when you're actually sitting and talking to them. So, Narin, I remember when I was building a gaming company a few years back i remember talking to our users and we would get our entire team in a we had a very small team we'll get them into a in a conference room we'll discuss the set of seven eight questions that we'll be calling up our users and discussing asking these questions uh, and probably you, the focus was trying to listen to them trying to understand what they are saying rather than uh, trying to probably probe them and understand what they're saying right uh, and i believe that was the phase where uh, the product changed rapidly and the product changed uh, the the quickest the quickest changes and the uh, and the uh, the fastest way to change your product and to probably come up with a mature product uh, is that I believe 
because that is where uh, the product changed the most for us what i want to understand is that when you when you are building wilfia and you are doing a lot of these uh, customer search you are doing a lot of these customer calls how did the feed, how did the feedback that is that was coming out from customers how did that change your product how what kind of changes were you able to bring into uh, your product yeah any any examples there that's a good question i think um i i believe like since i worked at wealth trend under andy ratcliffe one of the things that he really pushed the product team at that point when we were talking to customers was like unless you learn like unless you were surprised about a learning from those user interviews you're not really learning so one of the things that we learned um earlier during the customer research process for wolfia was like even though developers are full on uh, like very happy with automation when it comes to like the end mobile releases where they're pushing out to production they still didn't want to fully automate it like there was still some resistance to automating that process because of the risk involved like initially since we were at a very high quality engineering company and like we were full on with automation and everything we entirely automated as much as possible but just like seeing that pushback even from developers about like not automating that was a surprise so we had to tweak a couple of things where instead of just offering just like full on automation like adding a button where you can manually release if you want to and then slowly adopting the product and getting more people in getting them used to the feel of like releasing the app through wolfia and then slowly getting them to see the benefit of scheduling releases and scheduling automation was an important insight that we thought would be easier uh, to get people hooked on but just realized that even though like there's a lot of value in automation there's still a lot of pushback when it comes to fully automating everything um and i don't think like we would have really realized that when we are building it in a vacuum like you got to put your product in front of customers and have them actually use it and see what they're how they're using it um and learn from that so nice so narin you're currently working on wolfia right and you are simplifying the process of uh, releasing apps on the play store and the app store right can you tell us but still can you tell us in your own words what wolfia does and go into the details of it yeah yeah absolutely um so right now since the couple of pivots um we're helping mobile developers and release managers save time by automating their mobile app releases so for instance rather than spending time manually monitoring your crash reporting tools like sentry and adjusting rollouts over time we seamlessly integrate with all of these apis to handle these tasks automatically so that your team doesn't end up spending a whole lot of time just like manually doing these tasks so i think like taking a step back i think it's important to kind of understand what releasing apps generally mean mm-hmm. and i think like there's two pieces to it uh, one is just building the artifact that needs to be uploaded so this is compiling the code that you just wrote up and generating the artifact and this is usually fully automated most teams have a good ci system uh, and a build system that just like generates either the ipa file for ios or apk file for android and then 
this file that gets generated needs to be uploaded and distributed to the App Store and the Play Store. And that is where we come in. Um, so right now, today, if you go look at a general team, what usually happens is once these artifacts are generated, they go in, take those artifacts, submit it for review on the App Store and the Play Store, wait for the review to complete, and in the case it's successful, start rolling it out to users slowly. And this is painful. Um, there's a lot of manual process involved, and it's usually assigned to the tech lead or the release engineer that does all of these manually for the most part. There are automation tools out there like Fastlane that try to automate things as much as possible, but they fall short today because Fastlane is kind of part of the CI process, which means it's a one-shot tool that basically pulls and submits it for review, but doesn't automatically roll it out, etc. And that is where we come in. Um, what we do is once the app is submitted, we wait for the review, and in the case the review is successful, automatically start rolling out, rolling it out. And not only that, we also integrate with your crash reporting tool, like Sentry, and we pull for any crashes, check if the crash rate is exceeding, if it's exceeding a threshold, we automatically halt your release and manage the entire rollout process. And that's something like people do manually, um, like folks who are on call, um, just like switch back and forth to these tools, see if the crash rate is high, and then manually halt the rollout and do all of this manually. And I think like we are just getting started. Uh, this was a pain point that we felt personally at Bellstrand and wanted to automate that. And there's a whole lot of other enterprise companies that are going through the same pain point. And that's kind of what we are trying to solve uh, with Wilfia right now. I think I think even as a young startup, we have faced that uh, pain those pain points multiple times, having to roll back things manually, and uh, do things over and over again and again. Yeah, and having to track those things <laughs> manually every time, right? With that apprehension of I don't know what will uh, what will break, right? But you got in, but I want to talk about uh, Y Combinator a bit. You got into Y Combinator early with your product, right? Uh, how has YC and Y Combinator shaped your understanding and also the product and the and building the company at a at large yeah that's a really good question and i think like there's a common misconception that you need to have a product basically to get into yc for us that wasn't true uh, we applied with an early stage idea uh, right out of getting out of wealth rent uh, we went into the interview the idea itself didn't work out um, but during the interview, we iterated on a bunch of ideas because we had expertise in fintech and mobile, and YC was happy to have us with those ideas. Uh, they basically helped formulate the kind of problems that we are trying to solve today. Um, and I think like people are hesitant to apply to YC because they think like, hey, I'm too early for YC. I think like that's totally false. Um, YC really evaluates founders and see how they are in their career and how they're thinking and how gritty they are and try to get them into YC instead of like just evaluating the product because I think like they've had so many successful founders start really massive companies after getting into YC and pivoting. Um, 
so for us that was exactly true like we didn't really have a product when we got into yc and i think like to answer your second question um we learned like we learned a lot of great things from yc a lot of which were counterintuitive uh like you wouldn't really think like hey this is how massive companies got built because one of the first advice is like don't go getting a bunch of customers and getting them to slightly like you but find a few folks who really really love the product that you're building so basically try to get 10 customers who love you and who are willing to go and talk to their friends about you rather than like finding a hundred or thousand people who are like yeah this is a cool product um and that was just something that you wouldn't think of intuitively but that's one of the first learnings that we had and i think like there's tons more if you want me to keep going about it but yeah i think i think i remember uh, an advice from yc which was uh, build things that don't scale it seems like yeah. like i said it seems so counterintuitive uh yeah. but uh but it's so obvious when you think about it but yeah i think uh, uh so i want to say that uh ulfia is at a very early early stage right uh, at this stage of the business what are your biggest challenges for us right now i think it's very similar to any early stage company which is just like getting customers um and i think like that trickles down into other problems that you see but i think like fundamentally what we're having challenges with is just like getting more people into the funnel getting more people excited about the product and finding the people that have a problem so we're trying to solve those in multiple ways like we're trying to um like write blogs and do unscalable things like going to conferences and like literally going to places where our customers exist and i think like that's the most tricky part of any problem that you're solving which is like finding those people who have the particular problem within in a hair on fire sort of instance um, that they want to solve and i think like for us in particular we want to find people who are willing to automate their builds who are looking to scale their process from one person just releasing the app to maybe a team of 5 who wants to automate and improve their process so it's really finding the people at the right instance when Narin, they want to improve the process yeah narin i have a quick question here that you mentioned uh, you're trying to get customers uh, why not let's say run a little uh, a dozens of ads and get these customers and then probably uh, look at their feedback look at their understanding of the product and the need of the product so initially when you're trying to find early customers i mean you, uh, it's, it's similar to what ycc is right i uh, do things that don't scale what you're doing right now is probably going to conferences trying to talk to trying to reach out to and meet these people personally right which is something that doesn't scale which is something that ycc also advises but yeah for the general public for everyone for the for our audience why do things like that and why not run ads which can totally scale right i think like right now um you're when you're at such a early stage you don't really know what resonates with the with the public like you don't really know what to put in the ad for everyone to be attracted with it 
and like come to your product to automatically sign up and like buy you. So I think like ads are a great way to scale when you know what exactly you're solving, what exactly resonates with the group of customers that you already have. And when you're going from like a product market fit stage to scaling stage, but doesn't really work when you're pre-product market fit and when you're like just now trying to figure out what's the exact problem that you're solving, what's the exact pain point that you're solving and what resonates with the customers. And I think like that's one of those, I think like people are usually enticed by trying to scale and like trying to sort of like work around these tougher problems of meeting the people, like talking to the customers. But I think like that's usually a mistake. Um, and what it sometimes lends to is like you get a bunch of customers who are not high intent, doesn't necessarily want to solve the same problem as the problem that you're solving, which lends itself to different types of feedback that are all over the place and lends yourself to wasting a bunch of time. And six months down the line, you want to pivot again because you don't know what exactly you're solving. And that's how I've come to see it play when people are like trying to scale with ads when they don't necessarily have a product that works. I totally agree. I think uh, uh, meeting customers and doing these things uh, that don't scale actually is, is part of the process of building the product, right? You get a lot of insights that eventually uh, get pushed into the product itself. And you get a lot of insights on how to reach out to these customers eventually when you're looking to scale, right? Uh, exactly. And especially like when you're building a go-to-market strategy eventually to scale, you when, when you're hiring people to do the scaling, you want to give them a playbook ideally of these are the things you should do to get these customers. And if all you have is like, hey, run these ads, that's like, usually it's not like one, not good unit economics and two, most likely doesn't work uh, in the long run. Yep, yep, yep. And you've worked in tech for a very long time, right? And you've worked across multiple domains. So what made you zero down on the idea of uh, Ulfia and the, on the idea of, say, automating mobile releases? Two things in particular. One is we're really solving a pain point that we felt personally. So when I managed the mobile infrastructure teams at Beltran, this was something that we just did every couple of weeks where we would release it, roll it out, see if we need to halt releases, and then just like manually do this back and forth. So it's more like solving a pain that we personally felt, which I think is one of the ways to sort of work around, um, not really work around, but sort of enhance um, and know that a problem truly exists. Um, and the other side of the equation is while we were solving and like trying to talk to customers with our previous idea, we heard this a whole lot. Like we were hearing like, hey, like we have problems with our releases. Would you mind solving those uh, problems? And I think like putting those two and two together kind of led to us focusing on automating mobile releases. Um, and that's where like the concept of founder market fit really plays in. And I think like YC helped us 
figure this out during the patch. Where like one since you have expertise in one domain, you can weed out when people are just like like I, I I'm not sure if you've heard of the mom test. It's a really good book about validating what your customers are talking about, whether they're actually speaking from a place where they felt the pain uh, or are they just like trying to convince you that you have a cool idea. Um, so I think like when you have found a market fit, um, you can really weed out a lot of those um, niceties and sort of um, appreciations about this cool idea that you're working and like actually nail down the problem that you're trying to solve. And I think like that's kind of like how we ended up in this place. So Narit uh, talked about trying to differentiate between uh, the niceties of the world and the actual core problems that people end up discussing. And also, well, I want to I want to dwell on that a little bit. I want to understand what kind of uh, how do you how do you probe a customer? How do you talk to a customer that so that they end up giving you valuable valuable information? They end up sharing their pain points with you. They end end up sharing also the uh, true product feedback uh, with you, right? What kind of questions do you uh, prepare? Do do you, do you even prepare questions or is it like mostly impromptu? So we have um, a couple of um, high level questions that we start conversations with, but for the most part, since it's developers talking to developers, most of the conversation organically happens. But I think like one thing to particularly note um, when trying to probe and see if they actually have the problem is what actions they've done in the past to sort of resolve those problems. So instead of talking about hypotheticals about like, hey, this is the problem that you're solving, are you interested? Sort of instead of leading with that, like actually seeing what they've done to solve the problem that you're talking about. So instead of asking them like, hey, how painful is your release process? Asking them what your release process is and have you tried to improve it? Sort of like gets them talking about like, hey, um, we do this rollout thing, which is right now manual um, and cumbersome. Um, and I've looked at other products to see if like I could solve it. I've tried to solve it if it's fast lane and it doesn't really solve the problem. Like when they when people talk about trying to solve the problem in the past, that's when you kind of know that they've had the problem. And the second part of that is confirming that they want to spend money to actually solve the problem. Like a lot of people have problems that they want to solve, but they don't really want to pay for it to go away. So sort of evaluating that um, need is also key to knowing if they really have the problem or whether they're just like making conversation uh, because it's easy to fall into that flow of like, hey, I, this is what I'm solving. And then they're like, hey, this is cool. Would you want to buy? And they'd be like, hey, I would love to try if you, if you built it. And you end up going down this path um, of just like building a product when you actually don't have a need in the market. And I think like, I would highly recommend uh, the book called Mom Test, which helped us learn a lot of these. I think like we've done this mistake before and like personally learned um, with the previous pivot that like you really need to validate um, before you actually go and build the product. And I think like you can almost take it to an extreme 
Like sometimes if you're building like an enterprise kind of product, I've seen founders just mock things up in Figma, go and get contracts or like things signed up before they even write any piece of code. And I think like that's the best sort of validation. Like if someone is literally paying you to build the product even before it exists, they have the problem. You could be sure of that. Yep, yep. I think, <clears throat> I think uh, the way a uh, lot of people build products, and I, I remember uh, listening to someone, uh, I, I don't exactly recall the company, but what they used to do is that they used to talk to their customers, probe them, list them all the problems on a, on a whiteboard, and bucket them into, say, high priority, a high effort, uh, high priority, low effort, uh, low priority, low effort, low priority, high effort, list them into these four buckets, and then start picking up low effort, high priority tasks first, and then that, that they would put them in their sprints and everything. That is the practice that I have uh, adopted over the years and have been following uh, across my various startups in the past as well. I think, uh, and the book that you talked about, the book Mom Test, I've heard of the book so many times from so many founders. I think now it's high time I get to read this now, right? Uh, <laughs> so before Wolfia, you were working with uh, Wealthfront, right, for almost close to five years. Uh, and uh, you were you were leading teams there. How how did you go about this mentality change from building tech and engineering teams to now building a company, uh, which is a totally different ball game altogether? Uh, which uh, very often very often what I realize is a lot of a lot of founders don't get that. A lot of people when they jump into uh, startups or jump into building their own company, they don't get the fact that it's a very different animal altogether. Uh, it's not the same as building a product or building a uh, an engineering team. Uh, that you have been doing in the past. How did you go about that mentality change? Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Like, I think there are two completely different problems. I think like there, um, at Wealthfront, just to briefly speak about my experience there, um, I joined Wealthfront as a mobile engineer um, working on the Android team and then grew to managing the infrastructure team. And I learned a whole lot. Like I was working, uh, the company was founded by Andy Ratcliffe, who was one of the best uh, investors out there and honestly entrepreneurs as well, entrepreneur as well. Um, learned a whole lot about product market fit um, and just like general philosophy about company building from him. There was a very high caliber talent in the company. Uh, the engineers there were extremely talented learned a lot of what I'm practicing today from there and also found my co-founder there, which is also nice. Um, and I think even though I had, like personally, I had such benefits from working at a good, like big post product market fit company, I was small solving like such smaller problems. Like I was basically growing a team and solving a localized problem of improving the infrastructure so that other engineers can work more efficiently and have a better experience. And comparatively speaking, um, starting a company basically is from the ground up, thinking through the problem that we're trying to solve, validating that with like real users and actually going in and by yourself, building it from the ground up which requires an like a totally different set of skills than when you're managing a team per se, or even just like locally building or improving the Android app. 
I do think those two things are related. I think like a lot of what I learned and expertise that I developed at Buildfront is useful when I'm building this company. But I think like the type of problems that you end up solving are very, very different and it takes various shapes. I think um, it's also a lot more challenging from that perspective where instead of like you being a cog in a very big machine, here you are kind of the machine. Like you're getting to try a bunch of things, learn from it, and take a lot more risks. Whereas like when you're part of this big company, um, you don't necessarily have the room for trying out completely different things. Like a good example, um, is right now, even though I'm the technical founder, my primary function is to find more leads, talk to them and get them converted. Like you wouldn't imagine an engineering manager going into a user research org in a big company and like try to have conversations with customers. Like that usually doesn't happen. Um, There are exceptions out there for sure, but there are always outliers. But here you get to do everything. Like you just need to develop skills in every which way. And I think like generally for me, at least it's a lot more exciting and a lot more challenging. Um, And I think like in the last year that I've been doing this, I've learned like so much more um, just by actually trying, failing and then improving um, that you don't get to do at bigger companies. You said you talked about, uh, say, you as a technical founder also going out there and doing a lot of user research. That's a very common, uh, that's a very common uh, phenomena in the startup ecosystem, right? Uh, especially with founders. What I want to understand is that, see, uh, there's a there's a theory going out there that it says that you need to have ten thousand hours of work or ten thousand hours of, you need to have spent ten thousand hours on something to be an expert at that, right? But as a as a founder, what happens is that suddenly when you're transitioning from a uh, from an engineering manager to a founder now today, uh, what happens is that you end up doing a lot of stuff. You are your first sales guy, you are your first HR, you are your first, uh, I don't know, marketing person, you are your first uh, tech lead, you are your first uh, junior developer as well. You are your first, uh, I don't know, every, every, probably every aspect of the company, you are your, you are your first hire, right? So how, as a founder, does do you end up bringing that expertise with, say, uh, sign, empirically speaking, uh, in a bookish manner, which uh, wants, which demands ten thousand hours of work in that domain. That's a really good question. And I think the way I think about it, you don't necessarily need to be experts at all of those. Here, what really you need to do is the eighty twenty. Like, what's that insight about sales that I can figure out? that's gonna help me get my first 10 customers? Like what's the insight that I can learn about marketing that I can get both here to more and more people? Like, and I think like YC really helps out with this by having such a huge network of people that you can talk to because I've talked to a bunch of founders about sales. Like since I've come from a background of a B2C company, where I've been mostly the engineering manager, 
one thing that I don't know a whole lot about is sales. So just like having the ability to talk to like the YC group partners and other founders who've done a whole lot of sales and like quickly gain from them tidbits that work and implement them in your day to day goes a really, really long way. So sort of like to put it concisely, relying on experts that you have in your network to kind of lean on and also doing the 80-20 actually gets you a lot farther away. And I think like the other piece of it is that like every company is unique in that you as the founder have to be the sort of trailblazer in figuring out a lot of that stuff. Like you have to figure out what exact go-to-market works. You have to go and figure out like what's the exact language that resonates with people. Like what's the value prop that you need to put in front of your users? What's, how do you want to tell your story? And only then can you like train and bring in people who can actually do the job. And I think like that's a huge part of it. So what stage do you think uh, is the right time to bring in experts? Uh, you talked about, say, uh, trying to figure out first. But do you want to talk about it in, in terms of numbers, in terms of, I don't know, what, what could be the uh, product stage or the sales number stage uh, where you would want to bring in more and more experts? I think that's hard to quantify in terms of numbers because each company is different. But I think the way I've sort of like thought about it is when you know you have product market fit and when you know yet that your product that you've built can be something that you scale. And that's exactly when you bring in like a VP of sales, VP of marketing, VP of engineering, when you know, hey, this is going from zero to one to a stage where you're more company building. And until then, I think it's super important to keep the team lean and not hire or like bring in experts core incentives are more gonna be doing the thing that they're experts on rather than experimenting, learning and iterating. Because I think like that's fundamentally the job of a founder and like trying to outsource that usually leads to more problems than the, those being solutions, at least at the very like pre-product pre market fit stage. I think <clears throat> you talked about uh, building a lean team, keeping it lean till you reach a product market fit and then getting uh, experts onboarded right at VP level and all of those things. I think one of the core problems that a lot of startups face is that, and especially uh, I think uh, also a lot of people who have been involved uh, at before the pre-PMF, in the pre-PMF stage phase is that, now so far, for, let's, say, let's say it takes them a year to reach the PMF stage, they have been deeply involved in building product, they have been, uh, they understand the ecosystem entirely. Uh, they understand the product much better than probably even the users or probably even sometimes uh, the senior people, right? And then suddenly someone comes from uh, comes in as an expert, jumps in uh, into the company and uh, becomes a VP and then starts dictating terms. Now, uh, in such a scenario, what happens is that uh, there is a lot of friction on in, in both parties. That is something that I've experienced personally. 
there's a lot of friction from the uh, from the team as well uh, who are trying to adopt to a new leader now uh, there is a lot of friction there are a lot of uh, pains that the uh, senior person also faces in the company right who's trying to now uh, run things his or her own way how do you think uh, people uh, should deal with that or say founders should deal with that uh, these problems that are bound to occur yeah so let's say how do you deal with a problem like this when uh, this expert that you onboarded as a vp he comes to you and tells you that there's a lot of friction the, on the team and they don't also what happens is that typically don't fully understand the process right they don't fully understand the nuances of the, every uh, of the product as well as the uh, the minor pieces that are built in the product yeah i can't really speak to that mostly because we haven't really gone to that phase i think yet so the few people that we've kind of hired are so um we've mostly kept the team lean meaning that we just have an engineer that we've onboarded that i've previously worked with and there um you want people who are willing to take that risk of being part of your journey of finding the product that works so at least initially um at the pre-product market fit stage you want people who are trying to experiment trying like who are totally okay just iterating on the product for okay just like you going through a pivot and i think like that kind of changes as you're scaling like you're going to bring in experts who know really what they're talking about and i can see how that could be that could cause a lot of friction when founders who basically steered the ship all the way getting there but i personally i haven't had experience going through the problem so i can't talk to that honestly in my personal experience what i've seen is that uh, somebody in fact everyone has to eventually go to the go through that painful process there's no way out uh, you have to gradually take it so you have so far what, I have, what has happened here you have had a lot of people on your team who take the company from 0 to 1 and then you get a lot of people on your team who take the company from 1 to 100 who will be eventually taking the company from 1 to 100 and there is no i have frankly i have not been able to find a, a better way but there is no way to probably bypass that pain and uh, reach a stage where everybody is comfortable with everyone i think that has to be more organic and everybody has to go through that organic process but yeah, i think in the initial phase of your startup uh, what are the key metrics that you are using to judge the success of a product team and just the fact that whether you have been able to reach from a zero to one or not that's a really good question i think like this comes from yc and this they basically ask us in one of the first sort of group office hours that they do and clearly say that like hey if you're a b2b company revenue should be the goal like unless you have revenue like they basically call out like hey anyone doesn't that doesn't have revenue as the primary target that they're tracking raise your hand basically so we closely track our revenue um and then another piece of it is just like tracking the growth over time the other axis that is kind of a leading indicator like revenue in general tends to be a lagging indicator of all the things that you do 
so one of the KPI slash leading indicators that we track is the number of customers in the pipeline and the number number of demos that we're doing. And putting those two and two together um, really lends to a healthy direction um, to take your company. So setting goals of like, hey, we would like to double, at least at the early stages, double our revenue in the next two weeks and like trying the best you could do to sort of get there through other like tactical things like reaching out to X number of customers or prospects, um, doing X number of demos, meeting with like X number of leads really helps sort of orient the company towards growth and the, the real target uh, instead of meandering uh, on things that don't matter. So Niran, uh, what do you think about the uh, recent tech boom, right? Especially with the disruption that is being created by OpenAI and ChatGPT for general audience. Uh, how are you planning to incorporate it in your own business as well? Yeah, that's it's been quite magnificent to watch just the amount of disruption that the LLM models are creating in the market today. I think it's fascinating and I'm like really optimistic about the future uh, that it holds. Um, I think it's, it's one of those things that happens really once in a lifetime kind of thing where it's a huge platform shift. Like I think it's going to enable, I think like a lot of people are pessimistic in that there's a huge probability that there's going to be a lot of job losses because of because of AI. I think while that's going to be true, and I see that already happening in a bunch of areas, I think this also enables people to do more in general. And to sort of ground it, I think like it just enables people to be more productive which in a sense is deflationary in nature, but also enables like so much more improvements. Like a classic case of uh, question that's going around the world today is like, hey, are all developers gonna lose their jobs? I don't think that's true, at least in the near term. I think um, AI is gonna enable developers to be five to 10x more productive because I see that day to day, like I use ChatGPT on a daily basis to just like accelerate what the problems that I'm trying to solve, like scripts that I would, that it would take me an hour to write are taking me five minutes to write, which is insanely good. Um, and I think like um, overall it's gonna enable um, us to solve more problems with lesser amount of effort and human capital which I think unlocks us to solve more problems. There are like so many problems that I think like require human capital that are not necessarily being funded or like like people are not spending time working on. And I think like this just enables us to go like expand and like solve the various other problems that already exist. And, and like uh, the entire world is trying to adopt uh, ChatGPT and OpenAI and try to build a certain products uh, around ChatGPT in their own uh, own space. I think uh, at my own company, uh, we have been building 
uh, certain products on over and above on top of OpenAI ChatGPT. Do you have anything on uh, in your own pipeline uh, building on top of say OpenAI APIs? It's a good question. So we, uh, one of our customers had this cool idea of like, hey, I don't really know what I'm releasing with each releases. Can you somehow use AI to tell me then? So one of the things that we did in our product was as you're clicking the release button, um, we ingest all your commits basically and sort of like ask ChatGPT like, hey, tell us what, what are all the user facing changes that are being made as part of these commits. And it does a surprisingly good job of describing basically a release notes, like we've automated release notes with AI. And people seem to love them. Uh, people seem to be really attracted to the notion of like them just being able to click a button and auto-generate release notes without having to go through all of their commits in a certain amount of time and manually generated. And I think like it scales really well too. Like when there's like multiple teams working on multiple products and everything gets released in as part of one release, this also gives them an overview of everything that's going out rather than five separate product managers keeping track of all of them, etc. That's just like one small use case. Um, and another interesting use case that we are experimenting with is since we have access to folks crash reporting data, um, we are basically looking into automating fixes for those crashes. So we're able to feed it the crash reporting um, along with the code and basically, hey, like generate a diff that would solve this issue. And it does a pretty decent job where like 90% of the time it actually gets it exactly right. I think like we're just scratching the surface of what's possible. I think like right now we're sort of like retrofitting existing tools with AI, but I think like there's whole scale disruption waiting to happen. Like I think like APM tools, application performance management tools are gonna look so much different two to three years from now where they're built with AI from the ground up. Um, so instead of like using a list of all the crashes that happen in your product, it might be like, hey, this is the highest priority issue that we are seeing in production and here's a fix for it. Like, do you wanna merge and then auto-release? That I think is gonna happen like very soon in the near future because of AI. And that's gonna unlock a level of productivity and quality of just software that's going out that just isn't there today. I think it's brilliant that you, it's, it's coincidence that you mentioned APM and how that whole industry would also evolve. I, I was having that exact same discussion with a close friend of mine who runs this company called Signos. They are into APM and observability space. Yep. And uh, yeah, I think, I think uh, it's a coincidence that you mentioned it. I think there's a lot that is happening in that space as well. I think uh, you mentioned a lot of, uh, as far as OpenAI and ChatGPT and its implications are concerned, you mentioned a lot of new use cases that are coming up and uh, things that probably humans were not capable of or required a lot of a uh, lot of human intervention a lot of human manual effort to get done is getting done today but you also talked about a lot of job losses earlier right you talked about a lot of 
uh, disruption that is leading to a lot of chaos, a lot of fear that people will be losing their jobs. And I think uh, you might be aware of this. There's a very viral thread on um, Twitter which says that uh, ChatGPT is my CEO and there's a guy building a company based on uh, the recommendations that ChatGPT is giving him. Uh, right. And he's asking the ChatGPT for all the, uh, how do I market this? How do I... Uh, promote this how do i uh, get stuff for this and that and he's posting those replies on the twitter thread and then he's uh, acting on top of that and and he's now built a decent company i think uh, they are at somewhere close to half a million or a million arr or something like that uh obviously that's a very yeah. cool virality hack uh but yeah what's happening is that uh a lot of use cases are coming up where chat gpt is actually replacing humans right uh yeah. where there's a lot of job loss that is happening what kind of jobs do you think? How how can someone prepare uh, himself herself for uh, the world to come, for the time to come? The time will be jo- dominated by people who are say uh, I don't know who are who are very I don't know tech savvy or chat GPT savvy. I don't know even I don't even know if it's the same thing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I I didn't know that they were doing that much revenue. That's insane. <laughs> First off, uh, but I think. Um, it's hard to predict the future, um, but that's dated. I think like still there's going to be a world, like even in the future, I think there is a world in which they're going to automate a lot of these mundane and sort of tasks that doesn't require a lot of creativity because that I think is the piece that's missing. Like you can like set up auto GPT, post it on your local machine, give it a bunch of tasks, and it's able to sort of come up with a list of tasks and solve them. But still, I think like there is the lack of um, reasoning and creativity that I think is still missing, probably going to be solved way in the future. But I think like I wouldn't change or stop learning anything for that reason. I think like people still need to learn coding. Like I think still people need to learn reasoning, mathematics, if you will, like still develop the baseline skills that you need to have to. Do you, do you think uh, uh, any changes are required in the learning patterns? See, uh, when you talk about the Gen Z people who have come out of college in the last three, four years, right? You can't but feel for them, right? Uh, they came out of college and probably entered into a into a world which was uh, which was COVID struck, right? Which was struck by a pandemic, and then they then fo- that got followed up with a recession. The world is entire world economy is in downturn, and then after that you get a you get a disruptive piece of tech which is now taking away jobs. So what kind of le- changes probably this would require in the learning patterns to probably be able to better adapt to the uh, changing world? I think I would think about it slightly different than the way you characterized it. I would think, like, I would love to be 21 coming out of college with ChatGPT. Like, that I think is a great way to accelerate whatever it is that you're trying to learn because I think that this is probably the best time in history where you can just, like, start a company on your own. Like, I don't think you need funding anymore. Like, I think, like, that world is... Like, bootstrapping by itself, 
just changed overnight where you can just like use ChatGPT to pull something of your own. And if you don't know about something rather than like seeking experts, you can have, you have this whole corpus of data that is kind of the expert in basically any domain and ask it for feedback and like iterate by yourself. And I think like I would, I think like people still, still should um, try being expert in some thing that they're passionate about. Like maybe you're passionate about um, education or like educating other people. I think like now you get to build your own edtech platform just with like a couple of engineers, whereas like previously that just wasn't possible. And I think like um, more than just thinking about like five years from now, there might not be the possibility of job of a particular category of jobs. I would think of how I can use the tool that exists today and leverage that to sort of accelerate um, whatever it is that you're building. I know that that's kind of an optimistic way to think about it, but that's kind of how I see the see the picture right now. I think like it's really really hard to predict like where we're going to be five years from now because like I wouldn't have predicted where we are today three months from now. Like I think like auto GPT is something that's changing very fast and like it's going to change like so many different things in so many different ways in the future, in the near future, like five years from now is going to be very, very hard to predict. So I think like the way to sort of counter that is stick to principles, like go back to first principles and think about what you can do uh, to improve yourself. And I think like using a tool like ChatGPT is going to help you improve yourself much faster than when you're not. Um, so just like leveraging that I, is what I would recommend people to do. I think that's an interesting take. I think uh, this is the first time that I, 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 I'm I thinking about it this way. I'm uh, Actually, I'm hearing someone say about, talk about it this way. I think there are a lot of, I think you rightly pointed out, there are a lot of new opportunities that will open up. A lot of new companies that will come up. Uh, the Probably the time to build is way shorter now, right? And yeah. uh, that means, that in itself means a lot more opportunities coming up in the future. And that's a brilliant take. I think... Uh, but yeah, I think thanks, Narin, for come, being here. That's it from the episode. And uh, uh, if the audience wants to reach out to you, what would be the best way to reach out? LinkedIn, Twitter, where are you the most active? Yeah, you can search for me on LinkedIn at Narin Mano and the same handle on Twitter. And yeah, uh, if anyone needs anything related to mobile, feel free to reach out. And thank you so much for having me, British. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Ren. If you enjoyed this, then like, subscribe, and say a quick hi or share your thoughts and guess you want. Also, you'll find our community links in the description notes. Join now for networking or to stay updated and participate in the events or just for connecting with the podcast guests. See you again in the next discussion.